Yes, 13 years later, the value of the properties has more than doubled to $34.7 million. Uptown roughly indicates the includes the 300 to 900 blocks of Southwest 3rd Street and 2 to 4 blocks to the north and south. New development and reinvestment in existing buildings is not expected to slow. Derek Lord, Ankeny's Economic Development Director, said, there are some properties that are underutilized south of the existing business district that I expect to be part of the next wave of new investment that incurs in that area, said Derek Lord, uh, again, Ankeny's development director. In 1874, John and Sarah Ankeny acquired 80 acres around the area now known as Uptown. The couple laid out a plan for the community, filing a record of the layout the following year according to Ankeny area Historical Society. Passenger rail service between Des Moines and Ankeny was established in 1880. In 1903, the town was incorporated. In 1912, a train depot was built on the site now occupied by Ankeny Market and Pavilion, known locally as the AMP. By the 1930s, Ankeny's business district, named Uptown because it was north of Des Moines downtown, was thriving. The area included a meat market, grocery store, a beauty shop, an auto dealership, a doctor's office, a pharmacy, a veterinarian's office, and a cafe. Between 1932 and 1940, four different fires destroyed many of the buildings that housed uptown businesses, according to the Historical Society. The fires are why Ankeny's original business district has few century-old buildings, local officials said. Over the years, new retail and other businesses began locating along East 1st Street, where the interchange with Interstate Highway 80 opened in 1965. Retail and commercial development also occurred along Ankeny Boulevard, which is U.S. Highway 69. In the early 2000s, Super Target and Kohl's opened stores along Delaware between 1st Street and Labor Road. Other big-box stores, restaurants, and strip centers followed. By 2013, the retail development had jumped south over Oral Labor Road with the addition of a Mills Fleet Farm, Sam's Club, and more retail strip centers. More recently, a flurry of commercial development has occurred in Prairie Trail, a 1,031-acre planned community on the former site of Iowa State University's dairy research farm. The district, Prairie Trails, commercial area includes eating and drinking establishments, a theater, a bowling alley, and an eclectic selection of retail shops and hotels. While sparkling new commercial developments sprouted up around Ankeny, Uptown remained tired-looking with scant new development. Leaning Tower Pizza and Yankee Clipper, both longtime Uptown business establishments, continue to draw customers, but little else occurred in the district. It was lackluster, said Alexa Middleton, a lifelong resident and events director for the Uptown Ankeny Association, which sponsors about 40 events at the AMP. There were two restaurants and service-oriented businesses, but little other retail. To have a vibrant, exciting neighborhood, you need more retail, more restaurants. We started to see a change when Fire Trucker Brewery and Porchlight Coffee House opened and improvements by the city were made. The energy started coming back, said Middleton. Lord said Ankeny's elected officials understood the importance of preserving the area in which the city was founded, but preserving the area meant making investments in it. The city sold its former fire station, acquired the Union Pacific Railroad property so that the bike trail could be extended, 
and conducted parking and streetscape studies. The city also sold its former police station at 211 Southwest Walnut Street to a private entity that made more than $1 million in improvements to the building and added about 50 employees to the area, Lord said. Your work to preserve a downtown area because it has historical elements that represent where your community comes from, Lord said. It also provides a place for businesses and residents to congregate and enjoy experiences that are totally different from what occurs in new town centers. People appreciate being pleasantly surprised by creative and fun places. Last year, work began on two new developments, the REMAX Precision Building, which is located at 709 Southwest 13th Street, and that's a $1.3 million project, and a 14,000-square-foot mixed-use building at 617 Southwest 3rd Street, which is estimated to be a $3.7 million property. The mixed-use building, which is adjacent to the High Trestle Trail and is nearing completion, is being developed by Carl Chambers, a longtime Ankeny resident and founder and president of Imprint Architects. Said Chambers, the bike path is literally our front sidewalk, and he's hopeful the building will be completed by late July when Ragbride passes through Ankeny. Chambers said this was an opportunity we couldn't pass up. Imprint Architects will anchor the south end of the building, Mullets, an establishment popular with cyclists who ride on downtown Des Moines trails, will anchor the north end of the building. The restaurant and bar, which will include a rooftop patio, will be the first, first Mullets franchise location. In between the two businesses will be Reality One Group Impact, an agency co-owned by Rob Spearman and Adam Grubb, and Uptown Dairy, an ice cream store operated by Aaron Shabona, who expects to open the store in early July. The High Trestle Trail is the main reason Sabona said he decided to locate the shop in the new building. It's such a big attraction and bicycling is only becoming more popular, Scabona said. The ice cream shop will be a destination families can ride to to get their favorite treats. The trail is an important economic catalyst for the city. An estimated 75,000 to 100,000 people annually pass through Ankeny on the trail, which was recently extended to the south to connect with the Gay Lee Wilson Trail. Riders are spending thousands of dollars annually at establishments and shops near the trail. With the new Mullets location, even more riders are expected to be drawn to Uptown. We have a nice eclectic mix of shops up here, said Cox, whose coffee shop is located in a building that once housed a Ford dealership. You never know what you're going to find around each corner. In the past eight years, nearly $15 million in private investment has been pumped into Uptown, which now includes 50-plus businesses. Additional development is expected, which current business owners hope attracts a wide range of retail businesses. We need more unique retail shops that you can't find anywhere else, said Robert Sainer, owner of Uptown Confections and Curiosities, which opened at 519 Southwest 3rd Street in 2020. Shops that are locally owned. One concern, though, is that the new development could make it too expensive for local businesses to open shops in Uptown. Des Moines East Village, where a mix of renovated buildings and new construction housed an eclectic array of retail shops and other businesses, has become too pricey for some small businesses, some of which have moved to other locations. 
Cox said, I hope that building owners realize the value of having a good mix of businesses and that the stronger retailers can help the small businesses through the traffic they bring to the area. If everything's the same everywhere, then it's no fun to go anywhere. Chambers said the bike trail will help keep Uptown vibrant and surprising. Development opportunities exist along the trail immediately south of Uptown that will provide places for unique shops and residences, Chambers said. He added, Uptown and the bike trail have evolved together. They both just fed off each other. One didn't drive the other one, but they're both pretty successful because of each other. And this was a story written by Kathy Bolton of the uh, Business Record. She's a staff writer who covers real estate and development, law, government, and retail. And we continue with our reading of the Business Record for the week of June 29th. Broadlawn's Medical Center plans to open a center that focuses on brain health and memory care in a new medical campus planned in Urbandale, a Broadlawn's official said. The medical provider also plans to develop a second building on the campus that will offer primary care and services related to behavioral and women's and men's health, the official said. The two buildings are planned at a medical campus being developed by Dr. John Tettinger, a local radiologist. The campus, which will be called Total Health Experience, is planned on 25.3 acres at 9300 North Park Drive, which is north of Interstate Highway 35 and 80 in Urbandale. When completed, it will include up to six buildings and up to 300,000 square feet of space. Development costs are estimated between $200 million and $250 million. The new Broadlawns Brain and Memory Center is an expansion of what the Polk County Medical Provider offers on his campus in Des Moines, said Dr. Yuish Shah, Broadlawn's chief medical officer and vice president of medical affairs, told the business record. Shah said, The unique part of the center is that we will be focusing on prevention of cognitive decline. Dementia is not a normal part of aging. There's a lot of good science that shows that up to 40% of early-stage memory loss, mild cognitive impairment, in early stages of Alzheimer's type, can either be slowed down, reversed, or prevented. That's why Broadlands is focusing on early detection and prevention. The center will be different from brain and memory centers across the country, Shaw said. For one thing, the center will work with people caring for those experiencing cognitive decline. Shaw, who is a triple board, a triple board certified physician in geriatrics, family medicine, hospice, and palliative care, said, Nationally, only 13% of caregivers of loved ones with dementia get asked directly about how they are doing themselves. The shocking numbers that go with that are that 50% of caregivers suffer from new onsets of depression and anxiety, new kinds of chronic conditions because they forgot to take care of themselves. The Broadlawn's Brain and Memory Center will also focus on minorities who have dementia, Shaw said. Older black people in the United States are twice as likely as older Caucasian people to have Alzheimer's disease or other forms of dementia, according to the Alzheimer's Association. In addition, Hispanic people are one and a half times more likely than white people to have Alzheimer's and other types of dementia. Both black and Hispanic people are less likely than white people to be diagnosed with Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia, according to the association. When a diagnosis is made, it usually comes in the late stages of the disease 
when there's more cognitive and physical impairment and the need for more medical care. The new center will include an infusion therapy center where drugs that help treat Alzheimer's diseases are administered intravenously, Shaw said. The center will also house services that families need after a dementia diagnosis, including blood testing, brain imaging, hearing tests, and sleep studies. Shaw continued, there is a significant connection between hearing loss, sleep issues, and memory loss. Instead of referring patients to clinics in other parts of Des Moines, we will have those clinics in our building. The local chapter of the Alzheimer's Association will also have an office in the building, Shaw said. The Brain and Memory Center will also include a dementia simulation house, which is operated by the University of Northern, uh, Northern Iowa's gerontology program. People who care for loved ones with dementia can go through the house and feel and sense what patients with dementia feel and sense. We are hoping to create awareness of dementia along with creating better care for people suffering with different types of cognitive decline. Planning for the center and Broadlawn's second building are still underway. The Brain and Memory Center are expected to be open by late 2025 or early 2026, Shaw said. We will serve the county and beyond. It will be unique for the state and for the nation. I have not heard of many models that are all-inclusive like this will be. And our next actually, our next article from the business record is actually a column written by David Elbert, uh, and the title of it is Life Imitates Arts, and here's what he wrote. My friend KC was at the John and Mary Papa John Sculpture Park, lying on his back and looking nearly straight up from beneath artist Mark DeSevero's T8 steel I-beam sculpture. What are you looking at, I asked. As he stood up, KC said, I was just thinking about how life imitates art. These twisted I-beams give new meaning to the Republican race for president. How so? I asked. Well, he replied, you see all these steel beams and how they start off from different directions and angles, then they all come together here in the center where they twist around and get knotted up before they shoot off in different directions. The artist was trying to show how damage to the human spinal column impacts nerves inside the column. But the beams can also represent Republican candidates, he said. Which is Trump, I asked. He's the one that starts over here and then does all the twisting around when it gets to the center. He's the one tying knots around the other candidates. Which is DeSantis, I asked. He's this one, Casey said, touching a beam that squeezes under the twisted mess and shoots off at a low angle toward the horizon. This could be Nikki Haley or Rick Scott, he said, touching another low angle beam that glances off the twisted mess in the center. Obviously, KC continued, there's not enough beams to represent all the candidates. There are 10 Republicans in a race now and a half dozen more waiting in the wings. Yes, I said, but what about the beam in the center, the one that pretty much shoots straight up right through the mess in the middle and keeps going? That could be Chris Christie or Asa Hutchison, he said. They're the only Republicans who are not afraid of Trump. Right now, he added, neither seems to have a chance, but that could all change now that Trump is indicted and none of the others are willing to call him out. I like Christie, I said. He's the only one with a sense of humor, but he's not even running in Iowa. His announcement barely got any notice here. Christie is using the John McCain strategy, Casey said. Ignore Iowa and put all your chips on New Hampshire. 
It worked for McCain in 2008. He did campaign in Iowa, but he won New Hampshire and went on to win the Republican nomination before he fumbled the general election to Obama. Think about it, he said. Why would Christie want to come to Iowa, where Republicans are afraid to call out Trump for being a bully, a sexist, and not too bright, and where every candidate has to take the ethanol pledge? Christie and Hutchison are the only ones holding Trump's feet to the fire and all the crazy bad stuff he's done, Casey said. Christie is a realist who knows that both ethanol and Trump are in the past. Neither are good for the future. None of the other Republicans have the moral fiber to call out Trump for what he is. And what is that, I asked. He wants to be a dictator, Casey said. His role models are Putin and salty leaders. He even poses like Mussolini and Hitler, defiant jaw in the air and looking like he's the only one who has the answers. His only answer to any question is me, me, me. Have you read the indictment for his handling of the top secret documents, Casey asked. It's devastating, he continued, before I could answer. The only Republican candidates who see the indictments for what it is are Christie and Hutchison, both are former former federal prosecutors. Christie even put the father of Trump's son-in-law in jail. Good prosecutors, no trouble when they see it, and Trump is in it deep. It's like the sculpture, Casey said. The only path for Republican success now is to go right through Trump like the center I-beam does, he said, as he walked away. And again, that's a column written by David Elbert, a columnist for the business record. And next up is another column. This one's on leadership. Are you getting your point across? Advice from a communications expert. This is written by uh, the column of Susan Susanna DeBaca of the business record. And she begins, If you want to be an effective leader, you need to excel in communication. In fact, the success of your business relies on it, says a Harvard Business School online article. I did a double take when I read that passage because when I was studying for my MBA, most of my classmates scoffed at any communications curriculum. But it turns out that in order to lead anything or to be a good colleague, you have to get your point across. Effective communication is critical for leaders to gain trust, align efforts, and inspire positive change all which ultimately affect the bottom line. Maria Volante, who is the CEO of Volante Consulting, said, If you are awake, you are communicating. It is as simple as that. Volante, a veteran communications consultant who is also an executive leader at Principal Financial Group in Wells Fargo, says that various studies show we spend over 70% of our waking hours communicating, and a lot of that time is at work. According to Volante, Leaders need to consider the overall impact of communication. 55% is what the audience sees, 38% is what the audience hears, and 7% is the actual message. You must certainly have a compelling message, but how you look and sound consistently are equally important. I sat down with Volante to discuss how leaders can be most effective in getting their points across to multiple audiences in an environment with so many communication methods and platforms, including verbal, nonverbal, written, video, digital, and more. And the first question that uh, Suzanne DeBaca uh, posed to Maria Volante is this one. What are some of the ways leaders communicate these days? There are the obvious areas of communication. In person, 
virtual, sending emails. There are also ways we communicate that we may not be as conscious of, but should be. For example, when we are listening, our nonverbals can send a message. I am very comfortable crossing my arms. That said, I try hard to not do so because it communicates an unattended message that I am being defensive or standoffish. Social media plays a huge part in this as well. I have worked with people who have a very formal and polished image at work, at LinkedIn, or with community work. But when you look at Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, they have a completely different persona. People will believe what seems most real, and when there is inconsistency, the perception goes to what appears to be the real you. The way we talk, write, and hold ourselves, even when listening, sends a message and is constantly being interpreted by others. Next question posed, what are some areas leaders can focus on to be more effective communicators? The response, listen. Leaders are trained, coached, and rewarded for being good talkers. While the ability to communicate effectively is critical, the best leaders know to listen first, talk second. A person in one of my training classes once told me that his clue that he was being a good listener was his empty coffee cup. He shared that if he was listening, he had time to drink his coffee, thus the empty cup. The person who did all the talking had a full coffee cup. I've watched for that ever since. Valente also says, manage virtual presence. The pandemic threw us into the use of virtual technology, and it saved our sanity because it gave us the ability to connect when we couldn't be in person. Even notice several years later, leaders can still work on showing up as professionally on camera as they do in person. Manage your virtual presence with the same discipline that you would leverage during an in-person meeting. Next, know you're always selling. Remember ABC, always be closing. Research shows that 86% of communication is persuasive in nature. We want to move our audience to the desired action. As a result, our messages should be designed to sell the audience on the benefits to them of doing what we are requesting. We know what we want from our audience. To move the audience to that action requires that they hear what's in it for them. Next, be consistent. The way in which we communicate is the way we present our personal brand. Well-managed brands are consistent brands. Think of Starbucks. Whether you prefer their coffee or not, you know what to expect when you step into the store. Leaders need to communicate consistently to avoid confusion and inauthenticity. What I coach against is presentation voice. It's the voice that a person takes on in front of the room that is markedly different from their communication style when just talking to you. Inconsistency breeds inauthenticity. Be you, be consistent. Next question posed was, is it harder to communicate effectively now in today's workplace with hybrid or remote workers are new priorities? The answer, yes and no. I love the fact that pretty much the world, even my 87-year-old mother, can use virtual technology thanks to the pandemic. We are more effective when our audience can see us, even if that is on camera. Forbes reported that perception of trust went up 72% when the camera is on, as opposed to audio only, and perception of a positive customer experience went up 73%. As a result, I share with all my clients, turn the camera on. Even if you're working from home from your bedroom, make the bed and turn the camera on. 
it's worth it. The challenge lies in what we're in that we're still trying to manage the environment when part of the audience is virtual and part of the audience is in person. We need to continue to be very purposeful in managing all locations for the audience. It's more work, but effort well spent. And then the final question that Susanna DeBaca posed was, why is listening so important in effective communications? The answer, when we talk before listening, we are making our job harder because we are having to guess. We must guess what is important to the audience. Why guess? That just makes our job harder. When we listen to our audience, we put ourselves in a position to align our message to what the other person told us first instead of, I suggest this because. It may be more effective to say, based on what you shared, I would suggest. Make it about your audience and not about you. And this was a column by Susanna DeBaca, The Business Record, when she interviewed Maria Volante, who's the CEO of Volante Consulting. Our next story is a feature of the business record called A Closer Look, and this week they're looking at David Keith. He's the incoming chief executive office for Willoughby, which was formerly called the American Enterprise Group. Dave Keith has built a wooden fire truck for his grandson, a roadtop desk for his wife, a custom table for a silent auction at United Way, and a question mark-shaped bookshelf for his office. Now Keith is helping to build a new brand. On June 26th, American Enterprise Group and its subsidiaries will become uh, Wellaby. Actually, they've already become Wellaby. It's a condensed version of the phrase, will always be. Currently, Keith is the president of Insurance Solutions and American Enterprise Group. And on January 1st, he'll become Wellaby's chief executive officer, replacing Tom Swank, who's retiring from the CEO role. Swank will continue to serve as chairman of the board of directors for the Mutual Insurance Holding Company, which is headquartered at 601 6th Avenue in Des Moines. Debbie DeCamp, chief marketing officer at American Enterprise Group, said that talks about a name change started in January 2019, although the name Willoughby didn't come up immediately. Among the driving factors behind the name change was confusion with companies that shared parts of the American Enterprise name as well as the desire to have all employees under the same umbrella. Keith and his wife of 36 years, June Keith, live in East Village, and we recently caught up with uh, David Keith for this question and answer session, which has been lightly edited and condensed for clarity. First question they posed to uh, Mr. Keith was, what brought you from California to Iowa? I went from California to Kansas, Kansas to Iowa. I went to Kansas and joined an insurance company named Security Benefit. That was in 1999. In 2002, we launched a business within the business, a third-party administration, a service provider for insurance processing. We launched that technically in 2004. We started in 20, uh, 2002. 2004 was myself and a team of four or five. It became its own business. I ran that from the beginning to 2014 when I left. It got pretty big. It got over $100 million in revenue with locations in Ireland and India. It had close to 900 employees, and I got burned out. I traveled all the time. I used to joke that the only thing I ever saw was the back seat of the airplane seat in front of me. But during the genesis of that, there was somebody who oversaw that, a CFO, and his name was Tom Swank. So he saw the birth of this, and when I stepped out, he called me and said, would you be interested in joining me up here? He became CEO in 2015, 
I came up in January 2016. I came in as the chief operating officer to help basically move the company forward. Next question posed was, with you and Tom Swank in a transition period right now, what does a typical day look like for you? My wife and my dog walk me to work at 6.30 in the morning. I start the day at the gym at the Y at 5. I go home, shower, pack my lunch. We walk to work, the three of us get a chance to have quality time and talk. Our kids are grown. Usually when I come in, I like the quiet time. I've always been an early bird, so for me, it's preparation for the day. I can do a lot more of my reading and thinking and whatnot, respond to emails, things that might have come through that during the night or whatever. Tom usually comes in weekly. We have a detailed transition plan. We talk about the hits and misses. Are we tracking to where we need to be? Oh, maybe we need to pivot a little here or a little there. We're actually technically two months ahead. We've done a pretty good job of communication. Internally, this leadership team knew about the change in leadership, and we slowly unpacked it. I have a team today that's not going to be my team going forward. So I run the sales group today, the technology, basically all of the operations, the profit and loss aspects. Now I'm taking on the financial side, the investment side, marketing, communications, other aspects of legal, HR. So I'm getting to know those individuals, and it's gone very well. I like the interaction. The next question posed to Mr. Keith, what are some priorities you expect to focus on the next couple years, especially after the transition happens? Well, we've just gone through this exercise about our vision, which is to be the most trusted provider of health and wealth solutions in an increasingly connected world. Now here's the catch. We're seeing more and more of the digitization of insurance, meaning digital capabilities are coming forward, and now throw in things like artificial intelligence. Our focus is to continue down that first path. And so we have our main themes. We want to continue to grow, and we've done very well in the last few years. I'm going to use the term operational rationalization. It just means we need to get our model rationalized to support that increasingly connected world. We're going to put a lot more emphasis on engaging with the customer. Most insurance companies don't engage directly with customers. They sell their products through distribution, which is not a problem. Distribution treats the carriers insurance companies very well, but we'd like to also to build a bridge to a customer. I think the last tenet of this is leveraging data to make better decisions. That's how I think of this. Those are the main things that we're going to focus on that will probably have a lot of initiatives underneath. But that's the track record over the next few years, basically where we're going to apply our capital. The next question posed was, tell me about the name change. Will always be. Uh, what were the major drivers behind it? So what is an insurance company providing? It's a promise. So we'll always be there for you. We'll always be there for you when you're healthy. We'll be there for you when you're not. We'll be delivering the solutions you need, and we remember where we came from. So we'll always be. It's a great way to think about it. The driver, though, was what we were house of brands. We had a lot of confusion. American Enterprise, Enterprise Rent-A-Car. Think of all the names that come up. American Equity is down the street. The idea was, let's consolidate those brands. Basically, we have one. Next question. How did COVID-19 pandemic change what you do? And again, the question was, how did the COVID-19 pandemic change what you do as well as your goals going forward? Uh, Mr. Key's answer was, for me personally, I didn't leave the office. Very few of us, we decided to stay. I got to tell you, I struggled working at home. So I asked permission to stay. There were very few. 
Tom Swank was here, he never left. One of the things we did during the pandemic is we took advantage of a crisis. In other words, we didn't stand resting on the sidelines saying, well, we're just going to hunker down. We actually made a lot of changes. So I'll give you an example just to illustrate. We digitized our whole front end. It's called new business submission. When agents are submitting businesses on behalf of their customer to us, like purchasing a Medicare supplement or a dental policy or a final expense policy. All that experience in the front end used to be paper. It's now all electronic, all of it. We did that during COVID, so we took advantage of that. And why did we do it then? Because of distribution. They couldn't talk to their customers. They couldn't walk in with a piece of paper. It was a great chance to say, guess what? Everybody's got to pivot. That was a good thing for us. Now all of that is electronic. Next question posed to Mr. Keith. You've been promoted at AEG previously. Did you learn anything in that transition that will help you now going into your new role? He said, I can give you two points on this. One is I'm always appreciative to get recognized. The recognition doesn't come from just what I do. It's what the team does, so those individuals that you're surrounded by. It's all about delivering, executing on a plan, which we did very well. It's recognition of that promotion. That's one aspect. The other aspect, which takes a little bit more, I call it challenging, is its new faces. So I'll have Debbie DeCamp, for example, as a direct. It's not that I don't work with Debbie. I have to learn about Debbie. Debbie wasn't part of my team, and some of my team members today, they go away, meaning they are entrusted to other individuals. So those are some of the things. I have two principles I live by, and I've always carried this through work. The first is to be a role player and not title focused, because if you're a role player, more more doors open up for you. The second is to acknowledge failure and replicate your successes. And if you're willing to acknowledge the failures, you'll be a better person in the end to be a later. Now a little biographical uh, information on Mr. Keith. His hometown is Lafayette, California. Uh, Family consists of June, his wife, three children, Matt, Marie, and Lucy, and one grandson, Rory. He received his education and Bachelor of Science degree in Business and Economics from St. Mary's College of California, and he is 61 years old. This uh, article, uh, the questioning, was done by Nicole Grundmeyer. Nicole is a staff writer and copy editor for Business Record and covers women's issues as well as other human interest stories. Elsewhere in the June 29th Business Record, uh, Music Collective hosts networking space at the 8035 concert. The Music Collective, DSM, founded early this year by a group of Iowa music industry professionals whose goal is to create a sustainable local music economy in Des Moines, will host an industry networking space at the 8035 Music Festival, which takes place July 7th through 8th in Des Moines' Western Gateway Park. The collective will have an RV set up in the Des Moines Radio Group parking lot at 1416 Locust Street. Anyone interested in learning about the local music scene and the professionals who support it is welcome to visit and meet musicians and other music industry professionals during a series of industry hours hosted by leaders in each sector. Des Moines ticketing company Midwest Ticks will also host a campfire jam session on July 8th. In 2022, the Des Moines music industry had an estimated economic impact of about $178 million. Viridian Credit Union recently granted $14,000 in scholarships to seven students across Iowa for the upcoming 2023-2024 academic year. 
The scholarships were distributed across three categories, with two $2,000 scholarships awarded to Viridian members in each category. The categories include incoming freshmen, undergraduates, and technical trade students. In addition, an extra $2,000 was awarded through Viridian's Art Share program to high school seniors who plan to pursue a career in the arts. Last year, Viridian Credit Union expanded its scholarship program, increasing the number of recipients from four to seven and introducing a category specifically for technical and trade students. This adjustment raised the total annual scholarship funding from $8,000 to $14,000. And um, there's a way to uh, view the full list of recipients on the Viridian, uh, the recipients of these scholarships on the Viridian website. Elsewhere in the business record, improvements completed at the historic McRae Park in Des Moines. A 70-year project to update McRae Park, a 126-year-old recreation area at 1021 Davis Avenue in Des Moines, is completed, city officials announced. The final phase of the $2.75 million renovation project included the installation of the Larry E. Moore Nature Playscape, which features a playground made with recycled logs, a spray ground, and sand play area. The Linda and Tom Cone, I'm sorry, Linda and Tom Keene boardwalk overlooking a fishing pond was added, as was a pedestrian and bicycle trail loop, a pedestrian bridge that spans the pond, and road reconstruction. An earlier phase included the addition of the EMC overlook. Des Moines Parks and Recreation Deputy Senior Planner Lee Wheelock said in a prepared statement, it's truly touching to see the finished product of a long-awaited project with unique park features that bring a new level of accessibility to the area. A ceremony was held at the park uh, earlier this week to recognize donors and mark the park's official reopening, and you're able to watch a video about the park on the Des Moines Park and Recreation's website. Elsewhere in the June 29th business record, downtown Des Moines foot traffic continues to take steps forward. Downtown foot traffic has improved to more than 80% of pre-pandemic levels and continues to exceed national averages, according to a report from the Greater Des Moines Partnership. That includes a 28% year-over-year increase in foot traffic during the workday, the report showed. Tiffany Talshak, Chief Operations Officer and incoming President and CEO of the partnership, said that despite the improvement in foot traffic in downtown Des Moines, more needs to be done to bring people to the area. What we know is more people are coming downtown this year than last and that people continue to evolve and change in the way they're using and experiencing downtown, she said. This tells us there continues to be a strong momentum downtown, which is important because a strong downtown leads to a strong region. Key highlights from the report include foot traffic Monday through Friday averaged nearly 63% of pre-pandemic levels with it jumping to more than 89% on weekends. Foot traffic Tuesday through Thursday was up 33% year-over-year. Talshek said that this is indicative of people's desire to be back in the office for peer connection, development, and mentoring. The national average for foot traffic based on the National Castle Back-to-Work Barometer is 49%. The downtown farmer's market drew more than 155,000 people in its opening month, an example of how events and activities can draw people downtown. Talshek said that the number of people attending the farmer's market in May is believed to be a record. The partnership assisted with two business locations are expansion projects. 
Those are the Landis Cooperative and the Meta Fuel. Downtown economic development projects totaled $8.7 million. Foot traffic numbers are a key indicator that the region is on the right path to being a more vibrant area, Talshuk said. The goal, she said, is to have a vibrant downtown, and the data points in the report help indicate that we are on the right path in regards to momentum and drawing more people downtown. The report was the second and was planned to be quarterly updates on growth in foot traffic in downtown Des Moines. The first, which looked at foot traffic in the first quarter of 2023, was released in April. Hoyt Sherman Place welcomes a new development director. They announced that Anna Kramer is its new development director. She had served as development manager at Des Moines Performing Arts for the past seven years. During her tenure, she successfully oversaw various fundraising campaigns, managed institutional giving, and ensured the smooth operation of the department. She also serves on the board of directors for the Central Iowa Chapter of the Association of Fundraising Professionals. Her, her expertise and passion for the performing arts industry made her a valuable addition to the team, the theater, and art gallery, and that was in a news release. Hoyt Sherman Place CEO Robert Warren said that Kramer's background and experience in all facets of the performing arts industry will allow her to become yet another shining star here at Hoyt Sherman Place. Mercy One House of Mercy Fundraiser sets a new record that 2023 Mercy uh, Game Show Gala presented by the Community Choice Credit Union raised $525,829 on June 22nd. The event held in downtown Des Moines saw a 25% increase in contributed revenue compared with last year. Team Claire, focused on mental health awareness, emerged as the winner, securing over $50,000 in pledges. The funds will benefit Mercy One House of Mercy, a provider of services for individuals with substance use disorders. Elsewhere in the June 28th or June 29th, I should say, business record, Ivy College names Professor Director of Supply Chain Forum. Peter Ralston, an associate professor of supply chain management, has been named director of the Supply Chain Forum at the Debbie and Jerry Ivy College of Business at Iowa State University. The forum gathers members to provide resources to students and allow members to exchange insights to improve supply chain operations. Their support provides for scholarships, study abroad experiences, faculty research, and more, a news release said. The eight current members of the Ivy Supply Chain Forum are Cargill Incorporated, Corteva, AgriScience, Danfoss, Iowa Department of Transportation, Kent Corporation, Land O'Lakes Incorporated, Ruan Transportation, and Travero Inc. The forum began in 2018 with the goal of building upon an existing commitment to private industry, the release said. In 2019, the Department of Supply Chain Management within the college was created. Iowa State is the only university in Iowa to house a department focused on supply chain management, the release said. Roston has been a member of the college's faculty since 2018, and more information about the forum is available on its website. Despite labor concerns, companies do plan to add to the workforce. The Iowa Business Council outlook shows increased economic optimism. This is a story written by Michael Crum of the Business Record. Companies are planning to add workers in the next six months, but still worry about where those workers will come from, according to the Iowa Business Council's economic outlook for the second quarter. The survey released today showed increased economic 
optimism for the next six months and an improved outlook for each of the metrics measured by the survey. The Survey of Iowa Business Council members gauges the economic outlook and sales, capital spending, and employment. A score of 50 or higher indicates positive sentiment. The overall index for the second quarter increased 4.45 points to 64.17. The sales expectation index increased 3.47 points to 68.75. The index for capital spending grew by 4.31 to 61.25. And the employment expectation index increased by 5.56 to 62.50. Joe Murphy, the president of the Iowa Business Council, said the increased optimism is a signal that Iowa's economy continues to be robust. And the continued resilience that we're experiencing, not from our membership, but from businesses across the state. Every one of our members has a relationship with other small and mid-sized businesses in our state. I think it really paints a positive picture for the state where we sit today, despite a national narrative of impending economic concern on the horizon. Iowa, once again, is weathering this better than many other states. Some economists are forecasting an economic downturn and a recession in late 2023 or early 2024. Murphy said the survey results show that the Iowa Business Council members, which includes leaders from 21 of the state's largest employers, are planning to add jobs over the next six months but remain concerned about where people to fill those positions will be found. According to the survey, 80% of Iowa Business Council executives surveyed reported that it remains somewhat to very difficult to find workers. That's down from 94% from the first quarter of 2023. Murphy said, The expectation is they want to expand their workforce, which is a good thing for Iowa's economy when companies are looking to hire and make capital investments or workforce labor investments in their company. The problem will be, however, where are we going to get them? Are they going to be brand new to the state? Are we going to recruit from another organization? Murphy also pointed to the increase in the capital spending metric as an indicator of the strength of Iowa's economy. I think the fact that the capital spending increased was as a good indicator of the positive momentum that our economy is our economy is currently enjoying. That means companies are reinvesting in their long-term plans to make sure that their businesses are in a very good position to continue to make money, continue to hire people, and to continue to impact Iowa's overall economy. Those responding to the survey also cited concerns with the ongoing stress on supply chains and its effects on the state's business climate. The data for the survey was collected in June before the Federal Reserve announced a pause in interest rate hikes as it continued efforts to lower inflation, which fell to 4.1% in May. Murphy said he believes some of the increased optimism seen in the latest report was a result of lower inflation and the pause in interest rate hikes. They, the Federal Reserve, has been telegraphing for weeks that they were going to put a pause on this, he said. Inflation is still an issue, but we're a lot better off from an inflation standpoint than we were 12 months ago, and I think the results of what the Fed ultimately did were baked into our results here. And again, this is an article written by Michael Crum, who's a senior staff writer at the Business Record. Continuing with the reading of the June 29th Business Record, a development agreement with R&R Realty Group has been approved by the West Des Moines City Council that will provide the development company a 10-year, 100% property tax rebate for office building prop, uh, 
property at 4900 University Avenue. The approval, though, came after questions were raised about whether the incentive was necessary. Councilman Kevin Trevelyan said at a recent council meeting, the building isn't falling down around its foundation. Convince me why this is good. The two-story office building, known locally as Palisade, has sat unused for several years. The property's owner, R&R Realty Group, began updating the building about a year ago as a way to attract new tenants. Other improvements are planned to accommodate a new tenant, Co-op Solutions, which will occupy 99,700 square feet of the building's 163,000 square feet of space. Co-op Solutions, headquartered in Rancho, Rancho Cucamonga, Cucamonga, California. I'm sorry, I mispronounced that. Currently leases office space in Clive. The company provides services that support credit unions. Clyde Evans, West Des Moines Community and Economic Development Director, told the council that Co-op Solutions would have about 400 employees in the building, some of whom are coming from other parts of the country. They are bringing jobs to West Des Moines, including employees who are actually are moving from other parts of the country. R&R felt that if they weren't able to get this type of assistance, they weren't going to be able to attract this tenant to the building. Substantial improvements to the interior of the building are planned, including opening it up to get more light in, Evans said. The property is valued at $5.9 million, which is $1 million less than what it was valued in 2022, Polk County Assessor records show. The agreement calls for a minimum of $6.1 million in improvements to be made to the building. The agreement also requires the property be valued at a minimum of $11.8 million assessed valuation, in return, R&R Realty Group will receive up to $1.59 million in economic development grants over a 10-year period, according to the agreement, which will expire December 31, 2035. Highland Apartments are expected to be raised in mid-July. Demolition of the Highland Apartments is expected to begin in mid-July after items worth saving from the building are salvaged, an official said. The Des Moines City Council this month approved a request to demolish the 108-year-old, 108-year-old three-story brick building at 3524 6th Avenue. Local historical preservationists explored the economic feasibility of renovating the structure, but concluded it would be too expensive. Invest Des Moines, the owner of the property in which Highland Apartments is located, requested permission to raise the structure. The nonprofit group has proposed building a mixed-use project on the site that would include residential rental units and street-level commercial space. Items being salvaged from the building include Murphy bed cabinets, trim, windows, door and door hardware, newel posts, and possibly wood bookcases, said Amber Lynch, who is the executive director of Invest Des Moines, a joint effort between the city of Des Moines and Polk County to expand revitalization efforts in the city's neighborhoods. The items will be stored until the proposed project's developer can determine whether they can be used in the new building, Lynch said. If there's items that can be incorporated, that's great. If not, we'll look to neighbors in the Highland Park area to see if they want any of the items, Lynch said. A developer for the proposed mixed-use project has not yet been selected. Invest Des Moines is working with Slingshot Architecture to put together a request for a proposal that will be publicized later this summer. The deadline to submit proposals will be in mid-fall. A developer will likely be selected by the end of this year, 
Lynch said. In the meantime, the building will be demolished and the site cleared of debris. The Carlo Demolition Company, located in Des Moines, has been selected to tear down the apartment building, remove bricks and other debris, and grade and seed the site, Lynch said. The cost to do that work is a little less than $200,000. Construction of the mixed-use project likely would not begin until late 2024, early 2025. Lynch said, right now we're in the standard operating process. The excitement will come once we have proposals back and a developer selected. Iowa Human Resources Society to hold 2023 conference in October. The Iowa Society for Human Resource Management State Council has announced the 2023 Iowa Sherm State Conference will be held October 11th through the 13th at the Iowa Event Center in Des Moines. The theme of this year's conference is The Great Reset, The Future of HR. A half-day pre-conference workshop will be held on the first day with a presentation from Tina Marie Wolfeld, founder and chief people strategist at TIMAWO. The two-day conference will feature two keynote speakers and a breakout sessions on talent, legal matters, embracing disruption, and more. And more information registration are available on the SHRM website. And that is a look at the June 29th business record. Uh, thanks for joining us, and we will be back again next week for another edition of the business record. Thank you.
I'm getting older. Do I need to worry about falling? Yes, you do. Every year, one in four people 65 and older will experience a fall, and many result in serious injury. The majority of falls happen at home, so take a look around. Replace bulbs and add lighting to help you see obstacles. Remove things that can make you trip. Fix uneven steps and floors, and install handrails in bathrooms and on stairs. Consider balance or strength training exercises, which can help with agility. Get your eyes and hearing checked regularly. Changes in your hearing can affect your balance. To learn more, please talk to your doctor about steps you can take to help prevent a fall. You can also visit aarpfoundation.org or medicaremadeclear.com slash falls. This message was brought to you by United Healthcare and AARP Foundation.